Historian Simon Sebag Montefiore concludes his epic biography of Jerusalem so. Jerusalem, so lovable in many ways, so hate-filled in others, always bristling with the hallowed and the brash, the preposterously vulgar and the aesthetically exquisite, seems to live more intensely than anywhere else. Everything stays the same, yet nothing stays still. At dawn each day, the three shrines of the three faiths come to life in their own way. But why, one dear listener asks, do these three faiths all lay claim to the one holy land? That is the question for today's Burning Archive. I am Jeff Rich. I am a writer, historian, podcaster, poet, and very, very, very minor government official. And this is the Burning Archive podcast about all things history and culture, where the past is never dead. The past is not even past. And whereby thinking about the past, we try to live better in the present and hopefully peacefully in the present after today's uh, Burning Archive podcast, although it may well be a diplomatic challenge for my uh, good self as I try to give a fair account of why the three faiths of Islam, Christianity and Judaism all lay claim to the holy lands in the area known as Israel, Palestine, or the Middle East, and certainly the universal city of Jerusalem. And this absolutely fascinating question comes from a listener, Josh, who contributed to episode 22 with Freya Rich, a canon of one's own. He contributed this terrific question, which was all part of Freya and my discussion of what are some of the questions that are kind of there at the back of your mind and you sort of know there's a deeper answer to, but you really don't quite understand the full history of. And so let's just have a listen to Josh's question. Hello, The Burning Archive. My name is Josh, a long-time listener and first-time caller. I think that a part of history which my generation could better understand is the reason that Jews, Christians and Muslims all believe that they have a claim to the state of Israel. Thanks. Yeah, it was a fascinating, fascinating question. And Freya and I had a bit of a follow-up discussion about that as well. Um. I think it's a really great question because especially sort of from my perspective, I was talking about this and it's one of those things where like, you know, you kind of know, but you don't know. So mm. I was talking to Josh about um, Judaism and sort of, it, you know, being grounded in, in Israel and then also the Christian influence in Israel and like how Israel has influenced Christianity. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah, Bethlehem. And mm. I remember, I was like, Bethlehem is the thing. And full disclosure, I'm I'm not, I'm an atheist. So I don't really, I've avoided a lot of Bible stories my entire mm. life. But anyway, I was like, oh, I remember they chatted about Bethlehem. That's an important thing for Christians. And then in my head, I was like, what? That's in Israel. And mm. it just, I know it's it's silly, but it, it just, my mind was blown that this, this place that I associate very much not with 
somewhere in the Middle East is in fact in the Middle East mm. and how how that can be where there mm. are all of these, you know, quite distinct, these three monotheistic distinct religions, but mm. all sharing this common connection to this place, which, you know, obviously has caused, continues to cause great conflict, but more focusing on the actual the reasoning behind that connection and, and blurring that. Mm. I just think it's so interesting and it's something that maybe something that I don't really think about as a sort of Anglo kind of person grown up in a not, you know, not a Christian household, but Christian broad tradition. It's not something I'm really thinking about. You sort of mm. compartmentalize everything. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, that's what I think it's a really interesting Fabulous question to explore. So that is the question that I'm going to address today. Why do these three faiths or lay claim to, sometimes peacefully, sometimes in conflict, the holy lands of uh, Israel and the Middle East, and especially the city of Jerusalem? And it is quite a profound question, and one which in some ways I'm going to approach with, you know, the back and forward of who took over when and all that sort of stuff. But I also kind of want to get to the history of ideas a little bit because I think at the heart of why these three faiths all lay claim to the one holy land is a big idea, the idea of uh, the one true God, the one true faith of monotheism and how that exists together with other religions, other faiths, even other sects, if you like, or other branches of the one church, and also together with concepts like law and the state and territories like nations as well. How can we get those things to live together peacefully and not not be at each other's throats? So this week I'm going to talk about I guess the long, difficult search for peace in the Middle East, and then how that relates to these three interwoven faiths, three faiths all with a shared heritage. Why the Holy Land and the Sacred City? Something of the story arc of Jerusalem, just to give everyone a bit of a sense of, of its depth and its richness and some of the highlights, I guess, and, and some of the reasons we are in the predicament that we are, I guess, uh, in those areas. Or not we are in that predicament, but why that area is in that predicament. And then uh, maybe just conclude with the sort of one idea with two or three dynamics, rather like the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost in the history of ideas that drives the story of these rival claims. Let's, um, let's uh, see what we have to say about this extraordinary, wonderful question and whether I can uh, find my way through the peace and ecumenical disagreements of Israel, Palestine, the Holy Lands in an hour or so. And I might say, I'm just going to feature in my music today a few uh, of prayers, calls to prayer, or prayers of each of the three faiths, uh, all recorded in Jerusalem itself. <laughs> Thank you. 
So Josh asks, why do Jews, Christians and Muslims all believe they have a claim to the state of Israel? And before I sort of go into some of the sort of topics I outlined, I guess maybe if I just try to answer that question quite directly. And I think there's sort of three layers to that, which is there's a kind of a sacred history. There's a sort of a long history of religion and culture and nationhood. And then there's more modern, it's the history of the 20th century and how that's played out in the Middle East. And the latter one is very much what we see frequently in news reports around conflict over Israel and Jerusalem and the Middle East. And I guess it's sort of there in our mind, but it might be good to just go back over some of that in a sec. In terms of the sacred history, and I don't want to get too detailed into it, there are bases in uh, the Jewish scriptures and Torah and in the Bible and also in the Islamic texts, the Quran, about claims to the state of Israel. So the Jewish texture, I believe there's various references in Leviticus and uh, others that talk about the covenant between God and the Jewish people promising the state of Israel on the assuming that uh, moral conduct is upheld and there were major temples and there's a long long history recounted in those texts of what happened with the Jews similarly in the Bible in Genesis, no less, in the first book of the Bible, there's a promise made effectively by God to Abraham to give the Jewish people the state of Israel. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. So it's essentially the same story as the Jewish tradition. And then in Islam as well, in the Quran, there are somewhat more ambiguous references and there is much, much, much debate, it seems, between uh, partisans on one side or the other about the meaning of these particular texts. But there is a, a similar kind of reference to the covenant made between Abraham and God for that land. But on the other hand, there is the sense that the true believers in Allah have, I guess, succeeded to that claim that by by being true believers in God in the, in, rather than uh, the non-believers of, of Jews and Christians. So that's the sacred history, probably a little bit clumsily handled because I'm not particularly a scholar of sacred texts but essentially there is that sacred history set of claims and then there is the I'll talk to the longer history in a sec but then there's the the modern history which is really underlay the long difficult search for peace in the Middle East and after the World War Two and the Holocaust Clearly, the State of Israel was created and the United States was amongst the first to recognise the State of Israel and it became a, a home for the Jewish people and had been for quite a while and we'll get into that uh, later. But it was created in the, I don't know if grief is quite the appropriately profound word, but grief of the Holocaust 
but also at the height of the Cold War and amongst the birth of the anti-colonialist or the sort of revolt against the colonial empires including Britain and France both of which had empires in the Middle East and there were some very murky promises made to both Jewish people and also to the sort of Palestinian Arabs and to various other princelings and statelets in the area and it kind of didn't work out but then as the Cold War heightened it became a really critical territory and originally uh, back in 1948 as I understand it Jerusalem itself in recognition of its its um, status as a universal city with claims from free faith faiths was actually identified as a kind of a neutral territory there in the center of Israel and I guess in a way it set up this unsatisfactory situation a little bit like East Berlin and West Berlin in the center of East Germany a a kind of weird diplomatic arrangement that simply didn't practically work perhaps within a integrated territory and then in 1967 with good and bad on both sides and provocations and defensive actions and aggressive actions I don't really have the ability to assess Israel had a very successful war in 1967 which included claiming occupying let's say uh, Israel fully integrating it into its state and I guess ever since there's been conflict with Palestinians about dispossession and uh, and again I don't really want to get into all the details of all of that but that effectively underlines the long process of search for peace in the Middle East which has been overlaid with the the Cold War conflict between America and Russia and with the anti-colonialist dimensions of views from Palestinians and the Arab states in the area. And look, for as long as I can remember, conflict between Israelis and Palestinians and Arabs and Palestinians has been a feature of the television news. I've seen decades of terrorism and bombing exacerbated probably in in the mid-70s by the resurgence of a major, more traditional Islamic power in Iran after the Iranian Revolution in 1977. I can recall Jimmy Carter, you know, having peace talks at Camp David and there's been peace talks here and peace talks there. One of the participants in those peace talks, Anwar Sadat, was assassinated for betraying the, the true faith of, of Muslims to um, by compromising with uh, Israelis. So it's been a very, very difficult, difficult process, which in a way has flown out of that 20th century disintegration of the old colonialist empires and their reorganisation as Uh, nation states that loyal to one side or the other in the cold war as well as the practical resolution of how do you find a sensible compromise between you know religion territory statehood such a kaleidoscope as as the the middle east perhaps surprisingly back in i think 2020 there was a rather surprising peacemaker who appeared in that area and let's have a little listen to an old friend and just a warning there might be a bit of a trigger trigger warning for for some listeners perhaps with the voice that you're about to hear israel the united arab emirates and bahrain 
will establish embassies, exchange ambassadors, and begin the cooperate and work together so strongly to cooperate as partners across the broad range of sectors, from tourism to trade and healthcare to security. They're going to work together. They are friends. The Abraham Accords also opened the door for Muslims around the world to visit the historic sites in Israel and to peacefully pray at Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, the third holiest site in Islam. Together, these agreements will serve as the foundation for a comprehensive peace across the entire region, something which nobody thought was possible, certainly not in this day and age, maybe in many decades from now, but one founded on shared interests, mutual respect, and friendship. To our honored guests from Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, congratulations on this outstanding achievement. Congratulations. That is Donald Trump. Yes, remember him um, uh, announcing the one of the Abraham Accords in 2020, which was a series of peace deals, perhaps the most significant peace deals dealing with the Arab-Israeli conflicts in decades in 2020, in the last year of his presidency. And they were called the Abraham Accords. And that gives us, I guess, something of a transition point to the longer, deeper history, perhaps, behind why Jews, Christians and Muslims all believe they have a claim to the Holy Lands. Because while these conflicts have been between peoples or nations, Israelis and Palestinians, um, Saudis and Israelis, Iranians, etc., Jordanians, Lebanon, blah, 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 Syria, there has been a division of faith has very much rested at the core of the problem. How can one have coexisting faiths at the heart of this peace, especially with the long, deep and profound sacred history they all have, all those claims back to their most sacred texts that they belong in this place and belong perhaps exclusively. But in describing them as the Abraham Accords, Donald Trump that surprising peacemaker, perhaps in a rare moment of true diplomacy, was able to connect to a lineage of one common prophet among the three faiths, Abraham, and invited people to live in peace with what they have in common, perhaps rather than divides them. And I guess it points to the fact that we have in Jews, Christians and Muslims, not three not sort of Venus and Mars from different planets, we actually have three interwoven faiths with an incredible shared heritage. It's very hard to actually tell. It's like a, I guess, a carpet, a woven carpet of these three faiths together, the history of them. It's hard to tell the stories of them entirely separately. So let's just take a step back and look a little bit at those three faiths. So today, these three faiths are, are quite different in their population of believers. 
Christianity, uh, according to the statistics that I've looked at here from an utterly reliable source of Wikipedia, is the largest faith in the world with approximately 2.4 billion adherents or just over 30% of the the world population. Islam has 1.9 billion adherents, nearly 25% of the population. And Judaism at least according to these statistics, I apologise if these are wrong, has 15 million. Interestingly, both for the statistically inclined, the secular people and Hindus both have approximately 1.2 billion or about 15% of the population. So that's the next big uh, religious group. And clearly Judaism, uh, the the long centuries long history of the Holocaust and the persecution has affected the population size there. But there's a very stark difference in the size. Judaism, it says here, is about 0.2% of the uh, world population. Hugely different. And these two monster religions and one small persecuted religion uh, all lay claim to one small territory in the Levant. The history of the evolution of those religions shows their their interconnection. So Judaism dates about 1000 BC and Christianity emerged as initially as a Jewish sect which then sort of grew very substantially and Islam it's and around about obviously about 0 AD, in that first century AD. And then Islam is a monotheistic reaction to polytheistic or pagan beliefs in the Arabian sort of areas and also a a, a sort of a, a, a purist response to the monotheistic traditions of both Christianity and particularly Judaism. That acknowledged those previous revelations. Indeed, apparently, a formative part of Muhammad's life was spent in uh, the Prophet Muhammad's life in uh, Palestine among Jewish communities and throughout the Quran demonstrates a very close familiarity with the Jewish scriptures. So there's a shared heritage of beliefs, books, as in the people of the book, and prophets. These three religions are often referred to as Abrahamic religions. They all have some common prophets within them, including Abraham himself, that person who received the covenant of God to lay claim to the state of Israel. And like Jesus appears, Mary appears in the Quran as well. So there's a whole set of shared prophets and, and uh, acknowledgement. Jesus is seen as one of the key prophets of Islam as well. And these three religions are also often known as the, uh, the peoples of the book. They all have a, I mean, many religions, I guess, have sacred texts, not all of them, but there is a, a, there's a, a particular sacralization of the book, the Torah, the Bible, the Quran, in these three religions and elements of overlap as well between uh, the three the three texts are all different I guess but um, shared heritage of those uh, those texts and those stories and crucially all three 
of these religions monotheistic, unlike uh, Hinduism, unlike, I guess, modern paganism or uh, secularism, secularism. They all believe or uh, polytheistic Roman religion or animistic belief in the divinity of spirits and land and all the rest of it that they all believe there is one true God, uh, that God is unique, and that God created the world from nothing. So it is this shared heritage of beliefs, books, and prophets that gives both a ground for commonality and coexistence, but also a conf- the grounds for conflict and conflicting claims around the state of Israel, amongst other things. So it is... Also, these differing but overlapping beliefs or creeds. And here I can just uh, rely on quite a fascinating book by Felipe Fernandez Amisto, who I have mentioned before on the podcast, called Ideas That Changed the World, and one of the, which is kind of designed, it's a sort of almost like a young adult text, or maybe like a school text, but it, it sort of gives uh, little short summaries of some of the key ideas that have really shaped the world, because Felipe Fernandez Amesto really makes the point that it is our, our ideas and our imagination which do shape the world, which do actually change change our lives, not just harsh material reality or, or whatever is in our genes. He basically describes how really from around about 1000 BC, the uh, Jewish people uh, evolved a from a sort of belief in a tribal deity called Yahweh, I think. I'm not sure I'm quite saying that right. To really sort of... Um, become true believers in one true God and held that sort of belief very strongly. And it was it was also connected to this sense of having a covenant of the Jewish people with God and having a very special connection of worship. That history that was then overlaid with the really, in some ways, tragic, uh, sacred history of sacrifices and sufferings and exile and exodus and you know return of the jewish people and and really provided a very compelling story of faith in a one true god with a special relationship to both that land and to uh, the god who promised that land to those people Christianity then, Felipe Fernandez Amesto really says, it provides a sort of a shift in the religious focus from a focus on the, the laws of the Jewish tradition and Jewish religion, the moral laws that the Jewish people have made a promise to God to be committed to, to a belief in grace as an agent of salvation. There was a sense that the Jewish tradition was too legalistic and there was a much more the personalization of the, the uh, making a more personal individual experience of salvation rather than following the law. Islam then substituted Fernandez Amesto says a law of its own, but it was a law a, a way of life with 
quite strong prescriptions about society, politics and codes of behaviour, Sharia law. And Fernandez Amisto says, proves suitable for some societies but unworkable for others. But it certainly restored law and submission to law to the centre of religion. To obey God's law was the, the ultimate command. And so uh, Fernandez Amisto says of Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad, he constructed a religion as rigorously monotheistic as Judaism, as universal as Christianity, as traditional as paganism, and more practical than any of them. For his followers, he was both prophet and ruler, and his teachings were a blueprint for running a state as well as a religion. And this is an important thing that I will sort of come back to towards the end of the podcast. This connection between religion, law and state, especially when it evolves into a claim for a territory. Christianity, Felipe Fernandez Amesto remarks with a little bit of irony, I think, was what he describes as a much more elastic, more otherworldly, but also more proselytizing religion that was more prone to change, more prone to outside influence, and had what he described as a more malleable moral code, which had many, many adaptations, but also perhaps gave it a flexibility to adapt to many, many different cultures and societies. So that's our kind of free faiths with their shared heritage, their common history of evolution one from the other and their differing but overlapping beliefs and creeds all with this fundamental thing of belief in the one true god why then holy land why jerusalem as a sacred city why is israel not just a a secular state but a holy land well i guess part of that is that to that sacred history, the, those sacred texts, where God promises in a covenant with the people of Israel that this is the land they were promised. In addition, King David, as in David v. Goliath, of King of Israel, who I think there's apparently quite a you know debate as to whether the pers- Dave, King David from the Bible really existed. And I believe, from what I've read and heard, there is being discovered some, including quite recent, like within the last 20 years, archaeological evidence that shows he did. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those, the um, history and the archaeology around claims to... This to any of the territories in the Middle East is highly politicised, I guess, or highly uh, linked to diplomatic goals of the different uh, parties involved. But I believe this is generally accepted by historians that David was a real person. But David made Jerusalem the capital of Israel and built some major temples there. And then over time, without going into all the details, there are these repeated stories of destructions of the temple and exile from the land. And that just makes the emotional and religious connection to that land so much stronger. 
And then what we also find, and that's very much, I guess, within the Jewish tradition. Clearly, within, for Christians, then there's also Jerusalem is the place where Jesus was Jesus was born, crucified, and resurrected, which made it a important place. But in particular, from about the fourth century, there is a, a strengthening of the sacred tradition, a sense of uh, creating pilgrimage and building some uh, important churches in Jerusalem. Uh, and we'll go into a little bit of the history later, which then gives that extra strong connection. But it, it's a sacred site for Christians as well. And then for Muslims, uh, oh, although I should say, though, with Jerusalem, one of the things is that the intensity of that has varied uh, over time so for those first couple of centuries after his death it's not all that important then it becomes quite important um, one of the constantine one of the byzantine the most important one of the most important byzantine emperors his mother helena um, goes to jerusalem and finds finds the cross and the nails on which Jesus was crucified, or at least was claimed to have been crucified. And, you know, there's a whole uh, tradition that develops up around those holy relics. Things sort of waned a bit. Um, clearly there were the Crusades, of the whole fight around control of Jerusalem. But from about 1400, it became, it wasn't exceptionally important for either it wasn't so exceptionally important um but that sort of revived uh in the 19th century and for muslims it's crucial that uh jerusalem was where the prophet muhammad ascended to heaven so that's one of the important dimensions of that and i believe the temple of the mount is where that is meant to have happened so according to traditional interpretations of the Quran and other texts, the Prophet Muhammad ascended to heaven in Jerusalem. Muhammad was carried from Mecca to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem into the heavens where he conversed with prophets before returning to earth. And so there have been many shrines in Jerusalem for 1300 years. There's a bit of a sense there then in terms of the sacred history in terms of the nature of the religious beliefs and in the sort of modern 20th century politics and imperial complexities, imperial rivalries, that we see why Christians, Jews and Muslims all lay claim to the state of Israel. But it's also interesting perhaps to have a little bit of a, a look at the long story arc of these religions and their claims to holy lands. Now, we're talking several thousand years of history here, but there is a wonderful book by Simon Sebag Montefiore called Jerusalem, a biography that I uh, read from at the start of the show, which sort of gives Although it's just the city, it's actually sort of a little bit broader than that. So it does sort of address the broader state of Israel, I guess. He says there in his book that for a thousand years, Jerusalem was exclusively Jewish. For about 400 years, Christian. For 1300 years, Islamic. And not one of the three faiths ever gained Jerusalem without the sword the mangonel 
or the howitzer. So there were all those religious claims, but there was a a long, difficult history of conflict and battle and, I guess, persecution of various peoples and faiths. And let me, uh, and perhaps the simplest way of running through that long and difficult history is just to go through the nine chapter headings in uh, Montefiore's biography that take us through the nine stages of the life of Jerusalem. So chapter one, he describes as Judaism, and this really takes us up to AD 70 and covers the promised land and the children of Israel, the Bible stories and the archaeology, story of the king of David and the destruction of the temple and their expulsion uh, to Babylon and coming back. And AD 70 is a very crucial date because that is when there is a, a, a devastating uh, destruction of and persecution of the Jewish people and destruction of the temple. Between the second chapter is paganism, and this goes from AD 70 to 312, where there's Roman control of Jerusalem. And indeed, it is in this era, Jerusalem is actually even renamed Aelia, and the whole territory of Judea is renamed by the Romans Palestine, which they took that name from the Philistines, the former enemies of the Israelis, Jewish people, as something of an epic troll by the Roman warlord or, or uh, governor of the area. So that's where we get the term Palestine from. Then from 312 AD to 518 AD, this is really the high point of Byzantine control of uh, Jerusalem, Christian Byzantine control of Jerusalem. But, uh, and this is where Constantine and his mother Helena travel and discover the true cross. But they actually, while making it a bit of a Christian pilgrim site, they persecute the Jews terribly. And, but then there's a sort of a switchback by a guy called Julian the Apostate who treats, and in this era there's a brief control of Jerusalem by, there's a kingdom of the Jews, so to speak, and then there's a Persian invasion as well in the period between 518 and 630. And it's during the Persian invasion that it, again there is a, a brief uh, Jewish state in existence that is controlling Jerusalem. So Montefiore says three times since Titus, the um, Roman sort of lord, uh, general or whatever, who was uh, who, who devastated uh, Jerusalem in AD 70, Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Three times since Titus there was free worship for Jews and a briefly existent Jewish state during the Bar Kokhba uh, revolt in about 130 or so AD under Julian the Apostate and under that Persian invasion. But after that time in 617, it was not again, there was not that free worship of the Jews in Jerusalem for 1350 years. Section 4 is about Islam, and this takes us through the Arab conquests and the, the three successive uh, early Islamic caliphates, the Umayyads, the Abbasids and the Fatimids, up to 1099. Then we have the Crusades. And that era is really 1099 to 1250. 
Then we had the Mamluks. Mamluks were sort of uh, sort of Islamic slave slave soldiers who still sort of ruled the states. That takes us up to about 1340. Then we had the Ottoman period. It takes us up to around about 1800. Then the period of empire, where we see Napoleon come into Israel. We see uh, increasing waves of European and Russian migration of Jews to Israel. And the birth of a, or the, the sort of uh, resurgence of a kind of medievalist crusader sort of mindset, especially amongst uh, Christians and sort of romantic European intellectuals about Israel as, or Jerusalem as the holy, holy territories. Especially from, you know, in the early 19th century, Jerusalem is really quite abandoned and neglected and quite small. But it's, it's those growing waves, especially in the latter half of the 19th century, that start to build up a much stronger Jewish presence in Jerusalem as well as Israel. And they sort of grow and nestle within a decaying Ottoman Empire that doesn't have really the capacity to control it in the way that they want to. So it sort of, sort of starts to sort of change the religious and ethnic sort of profile of the area quite significantly. And then the last chapter is about Zionism. Uh, and uh, Montefiore doesn't use Zionism in a derogatory way. If you look on the internet, you'll find a lot of people talk about Zionists in a very derogatory way. Uh, it's, it, you know, uh, particularly sort of on the Islamic side of the argument. And uh, he's really saying it in a more neutral way. And it is that sort of sense of um, recovering a homeland for the Jewish people and refers to Theodore Herzl, who's really the, the originator or the late 19th century popularizer of the idea of creating a homeland state for the Jewish people in Israel. And then we have the complex diplomatic and imperial history of conflict around Israel-Palestine through World War One and then World War Two, and those events that I referred to earlier around 1948, where Israel is created, 1967, where six-day war, I think, or the 1967 war occurs and Israel's properly, uh, Jerusalem's properly integrated into Israel. And then I think 1980 is also a key date when the, there's a, a sort of a recognition of that, that fact.
Montefiore's sort of gloss on all of this is, is this, and let me just quote here. He says, Jerusalem's history is a chronicle of settlers, colonists, and pilgrims who have included Arabs, Jews, and many others in a place that has grown and contracted many times. During more than a millennium of Islamic rule, Jerusalem was repeatedly colonized by Islamic settlers, scholars, Sufis and pilgrims who were Arabs, Turks, Indians, Sudanese, Iranians, Kurds, Iraqis and Maghrebis, as in North Africans, as well as Christian Armenians, Serbs, Georgians and Russians, not so different from the Sephardic, Middle Eastern and Russian Jews who later settled there for similar reasons. He says Jerusalem is, as much as anything, a Levantine city more than an Arab city, and that all sides have unimpeachable historical claims to to live and live peacefully in those areas. But it shows, I guess, the difficulty of turning to history as a source for grievance and vindication because it, the, the history is too complicated and too multi-textured to really just pull out a simple we're the victims and you're the exploiters out of uh, any of that history. It shows the possibility, we hope, that people can actually live together well in that area. But what is it that makes, that helps, that that drives people to resist the idea of, well, let's all live together in peace. Um, what drives them to make exclusive claims for, for this uh, this territory? Why do we find that those unimpeachable historical claims uh, calcify, that they become dogmatic and exclusive claims rather than an open recognition that yes I have a claim to these uh, to live here as do you let's let's find a way to compromise there why do they calcify rather than being supple ways of living together and I think this has got a lot to do with the history of ideas and the fact these three monotheistic faiths shared the same homeland with no clear way of sorting out the tension between a belief in one true faith and that sense of pluralism. This is what I mean by this one idea with the two to three dimensions, like the, you know, the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost, um, all the one incarnation of the one true God. This is what I mean by this idea driving perhaps some of the, uh, it, it being part of the history of ideas that drives the explanation for why these three different different but overlapping faiths all believe that they have a sometimes exclusively asserted claim to the state of Israel. Because if you believe in the one true faith, you can have difficulties in accepting other faiths and plural faiths 
and I don't know so much about the history of Judaism, but certainly the history of Christianity and of Islam feature many, many, many splits where there is this tension between who are really the true believers within that religion, let alone the external uh, other religions. And then there's also, I guess, a difficulty in integrating faith with territory, like the Jewish people practicing their religion are promised the territory of Israel, integrating that with or, or, or the sort of Islamic concept, I think it's called Dimar or something like that, where other faiths are accepted within the territory of a Islamic area, but in a subordinated way, with more or less tolerance and intolerance over time. And there's similarly a difficulty in integrating faith with a state or law. So if you believe in the one true faith, how do people of other faiths exist within your government, within your state, within your single law that is based on your one true faith? So I think these tensions within the very basic idea of monotheism, one of those ideas that Felipe Fernandez Amisto emphasised as fundamental to the history of our culture, lie at the heart of the answer to Josh's question. He says, that is Felipe Fernandez Amisto says, of monotheism, on its own, the idea of God's uniqueness might have remained a mere philosophical curiosity but as conceived by Christians and Muslims, his cult aimed at universal propagation and even universal assent. The consequence was a long history of cultural conflicts and at times bloody wars. Moreover, in the legacy handed down to both religions by Judaism, God required compliance with strict moral laws. So the idea of God, thought up by the Jews in antiquity, has gone on shaping individual lives and collective struggles and solutions for most of the world in modern times. That's from his book, Ideas That Changed the World. And the counterbalance to that is really uh, a little bit of pluralism and a little bit more tolerance. And this is a point that Simon Sibiag Montefiore makes towards the end of his book on the biography of Jerusalem, a biography, the biography, as part of the, the search for peace in the Middle East, the search to find a way to reconcile and compromise amongst the competing claims of Jews, Christians, Muslims and different ethnic groups and different states and all the rest of it in that area. He says, The elixir of tolerance, sharing and generosity um, should act as the antidote to the arsenic of prejudice, exclusivity and possessiveness. His book ends with a plea for each side, particularly thinking of the Israeli-Palestine conflict, but but each side, I guess Jews, Christians, Muslims, each side 
to recognise the ancient heritage of the other. Each must, must recognise the other's sacred modern narratives of tragedy and heroism. And uh, Montefiore's uh, uh, solution to this, and perhaps this shows that he's a great historian, but perhaps not the best diplomat, he says his proposal is that the old city should become, as in Jerusalem, should become a demilitarised Vatican. So he perhaps unwittingly sort of put the Christians in control, but anyhow, <laughs> I don't know. Um, a, a piece of unwitting bad diplomacy from a man of letters. But um, he 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 has this plea for tolerance um, and seeks it in an understanding of these sacred modern narratives. But I wonder if perhaps the direct confrontation with those sacred modern narratives is quite the right path and whether, although Montefiore rather excoriates Donald Trump for his decision to recognise Jerusalem as a capital of uh, Israel, which at the time many people said, well, the sky's going to fall in, the sky's going to fall in, but it didn't particularly fall in. And uh, after a couple of years, there were those Abraham Accords, which were indeed a success despite Montefiore's scepticism. Not that we're advocating Donald Trump, but I guess in that regard, perhaps he was onto something that rather than counterposing heavy, full of baggage, modern narratives of tragedy and heroism, one perhaps should look at the more immediate uh, things where, where uh, people can uh, get along. And I believe the Abraham Accords were very much focused on let's stop focusing on the conflict and the resolution of the conflict. Let's develop business and economic opportunities for people and develop exchange that way. Perhaps it's a lighter touch, but still a pluralistic touch that is needed to find our way through to uh, the long, difficult path to peace in the Middle East. Maybe as difficult as it might be for historians like Montefiore and indeed for me, sometimes peace might be best achieved by letting go of history, especially when one thinks of history as sacred, tragic and characterised by sacrifice and victimisation. Perhaps rather than modern narratives of tragedy and heroism, the three faiths might turn to other forms of telling stories with many voices and focusing on the more immediate concerns of the present in all its wonderful plural real reality rather than the sacred memories of wounds long nursed by one true faith. And so plurality may be an easier way to peace than monotheistic faith. Perhaps also comedy might be a better path to understanding the history than tragedy. But that might require some discussion 
of what those types of stories, those seven basic types of stories and how they play out in history are. And it is to that topic, the last of the topics inspired by Freya Rich's questions to me in episode 22, A Canon of One's Own. It's to that last topic inspired by both Freya Rich and Isaac Rich, who suggested that topic to uh, Freya, that I'm going to turn in to in next week's podcast. So I hope you have enjoyed this tour through Free Faiths in One Holy Land. Uh, I do hope scholars of scripture can forgive me my my heresies and my uh, mistakes. I hope you've also enjoyed the sounds of the the call to prayer, the Islamic call to prayer, the prayer of a Orthodox monk in a church in Jerusalem, and the uh, prayers and sounds of Jewish people praying at the Wailing War in Jerusalem during this show. And it's those final sounds at the uh, sacred wall, the remnant wall of the destroyed temples of the Jewish people in Israel that we will go out with. And perhaps uh, at no point perhaps has it been more meaningfully stated by Ezra Pound saying what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. Speak to you next week. Yeah, <laughs>